Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 14, The Confusing Case of New Brunswick. I have to start this week with a slightly embarrassing confession. I have absolutely no idea when, specifically, New Brunswick won or achieved responsible government. There are a bunch of possible dates. Maybe it was at the end of the 1830s. Or how about Would 1848 work? I know at least one historian has claimed that this is the appropriate date to fit alongside Nova Scotia and Canada. Or how about 1854? This date is perhaps the most likely as any number of historians uh, note that Charles Fisher came to power in that year as head of the colony's first responsible government. The only problem is that the executive or cabinet didn't yet have the sole power to instigate money bills, something which is supposed to be a key feature of responsible government. That didn't come until 1858. So, as you can see, I'm confused. My only solace here is that, as far as I can tell, just about everyone else is confused too. There is, in short, no specific date by which responsible government came to the colony, though eventually it did get responsible government. It just came in dribs and drabs. New Brunswick doesn't fit the mold. All of this is a roundabout way of saying that we have some work to do this week. New Brunswick shared much in common with other British North American colonies, but it had its own unique story that I'm going to try to briefly cover here today. According to a long list of British-appointed lieutenants governor in the colony, the men who traipsed into the colony's capital at Fredericton stayed for several years and then headed back out to other appointments in the empire or back to England. According to these folks, New Brunswick suffered from a terrible case of parochialism. The governors inevitably complained that colonial politicians only cared about patronage and government spoils. They wanted money and appointments for themselves and their family and friends, and they wanted public funds to roll back into their home communities so that they could demonstrate what a great representative they were. The governors lamented the absence of big issues and clear party lines. However, it needs to be said that there was a great amount of snobbery in this assessment. It came from British aristocrats who unfavorably compared the selfish narrowness of colonial politicians with the supposed broad-mindedness of British statesmen. These commentators seemed to forget the way patronage and spoils were also a part of British politics. And one of the most annoying things about studying this era is having to read through the insufferably pompous accounts of snobbish noblemen who looked down their noses at the very middle-class colonial politicians with whom they were forced to work. To be fair, though, there was more than a drop of truth mixed in amongst the tablespoons of snobbery, perhaps especially in the case of New Brunswick. The colony was indeed small. It was also exceedingly localized, divided between different regions, the the large mercantile and industrial city of St. John, and then the the fertile belt along the side of the St. John River where the capital of Fredericton lay. There were the communities along the Northumberland Strait looking towards the sea and Prince Edward Island, and then those communities running east of St. John towards Nova Scotia. There were also the Acadians, the remnants of those French settlers who had not been expelled in the 1750s or who had since returned. 
They represented about 15% of the population and lived at some remove from their English-speaking neighbours. There were a lot of different New Brunswicks. But the largest feature of colonial politics which fostered parochialism, and the one which is most responsible for complicating New Brunswick's story of responsible government, is the fact that the major decisions about government spending were not made by the governor and his executive council. Instead, a committee in the assembly largely controlled the funds a government doled out to build roads and bridges and other government works. A representative from each county sat on this committee, and the main focus of spending was thus to insist that each area get its share. There was, as governors frequently complained, no overall sense of a public budget, no single vision of public spending for the colony as a whole. There was, instead, a, a buffet of copious proportions, one large trough out of which each local representative ate with ferocious abandon. All of this local log-rolling type of politics coexisted with the same type of family compact policies that would have made any Tory Upper Canadian blush. Groups of families monopolized public offices, often passing them on within families from one generation to the next. And yet, none of this seems to have inspired the kind of William Lyon Mackenzie type reformist zeal and, and anger at the family compact, at least not like it did in the Canadas. Certainly others wanted in on the system of spoils, but the attack on the family compacts did not lead to the creation of political parties and neat political divisions as it did elsewhere. In fact, political parties were incredibly late in developing in New Brunswick. I'm going to refer today to various people being reformers, but the party lines such as they were were very hard to decipher at best. One of the strangest features then in, in retelling the story of debates about responsible government in New Brunswick is that the Assembly's control over public spending changed everything. All through the 1840s and into the 1850s, we actually find British-appointed lieutenant governors attempting to eke out reforms that would have set responsible government in motion. Or at least, they would have made the executive the major seat of political decision-making, which is one key feature of responsible government. But the governors faced resistance from the assembly. It can almost seem as if it was the governors pushing for reform and not the other way around. Yet, this isn't quite right, as in the early 1840s, the governors who wanted most power to reside with the executive didn't yet want to concede that the executive had to be responsible fully to the assembly. So it's reasonable to see why some assembly members were wary of giving up power to an executive controlled by a small cadre of families and responsible to the governor. But there's also the, the persistent strain of parochialism and patronage from colonial politicians too. If they gave over power to the executive, they'd be losing out on the competition for public money and spoils. Even later, after Gray's famous dispatch that conceded responsible government in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick still lagged behind. The colony did have reformers who demanded responsible government, but they, as often as not, compromised on their ideals. So, for example, in 1848, in the year of responsible government elsewhere, two of responsible government's biggest proponents in New Brunswick 
accepted positions in a kind of coalition government. They accepted jobs on the executive instead of insisting that responsible government was party government. Okay, so that is my confusing account of the history of responsible government in New Brunswick. Sort of, anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll follow up on bits of it as we go along. The other unique element of New Brunswick's story is its economic link to the empire and the way, the way the triumph of free trade in Britain in the 1840s represented a near-death experience for the colony. Way back in season one, we talked about how Britain came to embrace free trade policies in the 1840s. Within a decade, Britain moved away from an, an economic system that largely privileged trade within the empire, given, giving tariff and other preferences to its colonies, to one which encouraged wider economic competition. This was an economic death threat to New Brunswick, even more than almost any other colony in British North America. New Brunswick was a, a timber hinterland for Britain. Forestry dominated the economy, with ships stuffed with logs and timber sent each year to Britain to feed industry there, especially the Royal Navy. What's more, the colony also supplied ships themselves. With the end of preferential tariffs, and especially the opening up of Britain to reduced rates for wood from Eastern Europe, New Brunswick foresaw its economic doom. The same was the case for the end of the Navigation Acts in 1849. These acts had restricted trade to British-owned vessels. With the loss of these protections, could New Brunswick merchants and shipbuilders compete in a wide open market system? If responsible government and the economic threat of free trade partly set New Brunswick aside as unique, in one area, New Brunswick's story repeats the trends we've seen elsewhere religious factionalism that led to violence and turmoil. In New Brunswick, especially in the 1840s, Irish Protestants and Catholics fought a series of battles over religious symbols and public spaces almost every March and July. The locations varied, but each year, around about St. Patrick's Day or the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, orange and green supporters came out to egg each other on into shouting matches that could, and often did, turn violent. The culmination of the whole conflict came in July of 1849, in the bloodiest riot in New Brunswick's history. The colony was founded as an, an independent entity after the American Revolution with the influx of loyalist settlers. It was, however, after the Napoleonic Wars that New Brunswick began to attract large numbers of British immigrants, the majority from Ireland. While in the early years most of these were Protestant Irish, by the late 1830s and into the 1840s, the proportion of Catholic Irish immigrants kept increasing, so that at mid-century, the colony's Irish population was probably neatly divided between the two groups. Tensions mounted as orange and green came to live side by side. By July 1849, all in the colony expected and feared what would happen if processions were allowed to take place to mark the Battle of the Boyne that year. Yet that didn't stop Orangemen in St. John from planning an elaborate march to celebrate the 12th of July with a parade route that would take them right through the Catholic community of York Point. And in this macho show of tit-for-tat, 
local Catholics decided to strike back. They constructed an elaborate green arch stretching over the proposed marching route. When a group of about 200 Orangemen arrived on the scene early in the day, they found the site occupied by taunting Catholics who dared the Orangemen to proceed. But proceed they did, though they found it a humiliating exercise. The arch was shaped so that although the men could march underneath, all those carrying banners and other flags would have to dip them to get under the arch, something that was seen as a sign of respect, kind of like doffing your hat. And yes, in this honor culture where, remember, dueling was still not unknown, this kind of deference burned. The Orangemen continued on their way to greet groups of their fellow men who were arriving from upriver. Once these reinforcements joined the parade, the Orangemen decided to go back the way they had come and to clear out the Catholics who, they felt, had so clearly insulted them earlier. This was not going to end well. Most people in the crowd bore arms with muskets over their shoulders or clubs in their hands. They may have let things pass when they were outnumbered earlier, but this time would be different. There were some saner heads trying to stop the proceedings. The mayor rushed to the Catholics gathered at York Point and implored them to take down the Green Arch. But not only did they reject his pleas, one young man bashed the mayor over the head. Others rushed to the Orangemen to try to convince them to take an alternate route. But the Orangemen were having none of it. Facing failure, the the mayor then traveled to the local barracks and asked the British troops to intervene. The garrison commander agreed to send out about 60 soldiers to try to keep things under control. They gathered in the market square, ready to seal off York Point. What this didn't do, however, was prevent the orange procession from heading into trouble at the arch itself. The troops were going to allow the conflict to take place, but then prevent it from spreading to the other communities. The crowd of Catholics had themselves now gathered reinforcements and weapons, and as the orange procession approached the arch, the crowds began firing their muskets and throwing rocks. In all, they fired hundreds of shots. Men and women screamed and shouted. Blood flowed into the streets, and the crowd unleashed mayhem. At least 12 people died at the hands of rioters that day, and there were at least 100 injured. But the Orangemen had been better armed, and in this second altercation had numbers on their side. After a brief and violent tumult, the Orangemen emerged triumphant, still marching in procession from York Point, having left chaos in their wake. It was only at this point that the troops marched in to seal off York Point and anyone from following the orange procession. The parade continued on throughout the rest of the city. The orgy of violence alarmed many authorities who made serious attempts to bring some of the perpetrators to justice, including some of the Orangemen. Over the next decade, religious violence declined precipitously. One historian claims that this largely was the result of a decline in Irish Catholic immigration and, even more importantly, a recognition that the Orangemen had won. They institutionalized their power. It became almost silly for local Irish Catholics to contest this by tumultuous parades, which would only lead to their own victimization. 
This seems a fair enough assessment, though certain Irish Protestant tensions would continue in the colony and would play no small part in the 1860s when the specter of Fenian invasions brought the Irish Catholic question back into public discussion. Okay, so far then, we've discussed a colony with a, a rough and recognizable history of religious tensions, a particularly difficult economic transition that it faced in the 1840s, and one with more than a little bit of a unique history when it comes to responsible government. Through the 1850s, though, New Brunswick politics also followed some trends that should be familiar to us from the, the other colonies and the way the process of reform, the, the kinds of issues that matter to reformers, came to shape New Brunswick as they did other areas. I'm talking here about things like railway building, of course, but also the extension of the franchise, of educational reform, and the fights over religious privileges afforded to the Anglican establishment. The man who perhaps best represents the rise of moderate reform in New Brunswick is one of my all-time favorite Canadian historical figures, Samuel Leonard Tilly. Usually just called Leonard Tilly. I actually have no idea if he shortened it to Len. Tilly is a fascinating and impressive case of a politician which many more Canadians would know about if he'd born in Toronto or Montreal and not Gagetown, New Brunswick. Tilly grew up the son of a merchant and he was almost certainly an earnest and impressive young man. He became a pharmacist and opened a shop that he advertised as a cheap drugstore. That's a catchy Victorian advertising for you. Tilly was almost a classic case of the mid-19th century Victorian reformer. He joined debating societies and became involved in the local mechanics institute. These organizations created reading rooms and libraries for the young working-class men of the city employed in shops and factories. They offered uplift and encouraged sober values of discipline and restraint. In fact, today's free public libraries owe their origin to the same impulse that created these mechanics institutes. Mostly, though, in his early years, Tilly was a temperance man. In the 1830s and 1840s, a slew of Victorian reformers came to believe that drink was the great evil of the day, the, that most of society's ills, everything from poverty to domestic violence, could be set down at the foot of the bottle. When Tilly was a young man, actually, he, he witnessed the aftermath of a brutal murder where a drunken man had murdered his wife with a butcher knife. One of the children fled and called upon Tilly the young Tilly followed the child back only to come upon the scene of the, the mother drenched in blood and the father being hauled off by the constables. When the American organization Sons of Temperance spread into New Brunswick, Tilly became one of its leaders, eventually rising to be its head, literally called the Grand Patriarch. Tilly entered politics in 1850 as part of a cadre of men like him, evangelical reformers who wanted to improve society, and especially locals who were angry at what they saw as Britain's betrayal of the 1840s when it ended imperial economic preferences. Tilly and his allies sought a, a solution in a host of measures, most notably in railways, in fostering local and continental trade to make up for what they might lose across the seas. However, Almost as soon as Tilly managed to get elected, he resigned. This was a response to the fact that the governor had taken two reformers into his coalition government. 
Tilly was a responsible government man, and here, in the aftermath of responsible government supposedly having been conceded, other reformers and the governor had betrayed the cause by forming an old, pre-responsible government type of coalition government. Still, Tilly could not give up, and in 1854 he came back into the assembly. This time, he came in with a whole host of reformers, and they were the ones to form what some see as the first responsible government in the colony, at least sort of. They were all at least reformers. In this government, Tilly had the second most important position, not head of the government, but provincial secretary, sort of like a finance minister. Yet again, though, Tilly's ideals got the better of him. The grand patriarch of the Sons of Temperance introduced a prohibition bill into the assembly. The bill wasn't the first bill prohibiting the sale of alcoholic beverages. Another had come a couple of years earlier. But Tilly's new bill threatened severe penalties. Anyone found drunk would be imprisoned until they gave up the source of their alcohol, kind of like jailing someone until they gave up their dealer. Now, temperance was a popular initiative. A strong and powerful minority of Victorians agreed with Tilly that drink really was the source of all evil. However, a large number of others simply wanted their booze. Drink was an integral part of life. I mean, if you think the fight over indoor smoking in the late 20th century was bad, it had nothing on the 19th century fights over prohibition. Authorities simply could not enforce the law, with many claiming that attempts to do so created mayhem. Within a matter of months, the lieutenant governor, who had especially disliked Tilly and his allies, used the prohibition scandal to toss out the government and invite another group to form an executive. They called a new election, and in this appeal to the people, Tilly lost badly. The election was so significant that soon after, the opponents of prohibition came to be called the, the rummies, those who would bring back the bottle, and Tilly and the reformers were called the smashers, breaking down the system, the rummies and the smashers. Again, though, Tilly did not give up hope. He changed his mind on the temperance issue. Not that he didn't believe prohibition was the ideal situation, he, he did, but he now felt that they had moved too far ahead of public opinion and that any action had to follow from local votes from the people in support of temperance. Within a year, when the governor's chosen men failed to hold their majority, Tilly and his reformer allies returned to government where they stayed until the mid-1860s. In 1861, Tilly himself took over the leadership of the government when the reform leader Charles Fisher was caught up in a scandal. All through this period, and right up until Confederation, Tilly became obsessed with the issue which he felt would most help his colony, railways. He helped to build local railways in New Brunswick despite the, the massive debt burden it placed on the colony and he became one of the chief proponents of the grandest of maritime railway ventures, the railway that would join Halifax to Quebec, the Intercolonial Railway. And so, when the Canadians we talked about earlier, first Alexander Galt and then and the Liberal Conservatives, and then later John Sandfield Macdonald and his government, when they went to Quebec and then to London to negotiate a possible deal, the man from New Brunswick who negotiated with them was usually Leonard Tilly. If you recall, 
We last left the story of the Intercolonial Railway with news that the Canadian government of Sandfield Macdonald in 1863 had backed away from the deal. The whole initiative had initially gained a, a great deal of impetus following the Trent Affair with the war scare with America. The British certainly were more convinced of the need of a rail link. But then the Sandfield Macdonald government, fearing opposition at home over the massive cost of the endeavor, had claimed that it was just wasn't possible, not with the British demanding stringent financial requirements. Tilly was so upset he traveled by land through the winter snows in late January of 1863 from Fredericton to Quebec. There he spent several days in meetings with Sandfield Macdonald's government. He left no happier than when he arrived, frustrated with what he saw as the Canadians' duplicity. When he got back to Fredericton, he did all he could to embarrass the Canadian government, showing them up to be duplicitous in their dealings. Tilly seems to have felt that the current Canadian government in Canada just couldn't help him. But he was more optimistic about what might happen if someone replaced Sandfield Macdonald. He definitely liked that Darcy McGee fellow who was an ardent intercolonial railway advocate. And Darcy McGee had just crossed the floor to join George Etienne Cartier and John A. Macdonald. It was entirely possible Tilly must have thought that if this group came back into power, that something might happen to change the prospects for New Brunswick and the Intercolonial Railway. And that is where we'll pick up again next week. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to our Patreon page if you like to support the podcast by becoming a patron. Thanks to the generous folks who have already done so. Next week, all the actors begin to come together. First, we're in, in Nova Scotia, meeting the pugnacious Charles Tupper, who has to deal with a band of Southern Confederate sympathizers trying to use Canadian waters to raid Union shipping. Then, the Maritimers decide to take things into their own hands in the face of the Canadian betrayal over the Intercolonial Railway, and are pushed on by the amusing figure of Arthur Gordon, the young and overly confident Bertie Wooster-ish figure who was in the position of Lieutenant Governor of New Brunswick. Everything seemed set for a maritime union until the visit of a young Canadian by the name of Sanford Fleming switches things up yet again. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>